Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Exurga Deus Dissipentur inimici eius et fugiancio deruntiu ma facia eius. Let God arise and let his enemies be scattered and let all those who hate him flee from before his face. So over the course of the last couple of years, I've tried to make sure that I ask the question, am I the bonehead? Of course, bonehead's not the word that I would normally use. But I'm also not about to cuss. So, am I the bonehead? And as time goes on, the gaslighting reveals itself. And I've come to the point now where I'm just like, you know what? I am so very tired of these liars. When I hear BS, I just want... I, I'm actually starting to get to the point where... I want to cuss at them and say something to the effect of shut your lying bleep bleep mouth. And I don't want to get to that point. But the fact is, is these people can't, one, they can't be taken seriously. Two, they're not telling you the truth anyway. I just got done listening to a podcast talking about everything that was going on with the, with the Durham report, with John Durham, and the indictments that are coming out. And it's exposing quite clearly for all to see that there is a RICO statute available. There is a RICO violation, a crime that can be prosecuted under the RICO statutes. And it's not just one. The John Durham investigation is specifically about the Russia collusion delusion hoax, right? And so that covers, you know, Hillary Clinton, the Clinton campaign, um, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, also Fusion GPS, etc., etc. Like there's just this big conglomerate of people who committed a heinous crime. And I say a heinous crime because what it really was was a bunch of small heinous crimes. They were still heinous. You're still talking about perjury. You're talking about massive disinformation. You're talking about interfering with an American election. Two American elections. You're talking about foreign interference in U.S. elections. 
You're talking about organizations and groups that literally paid money to weaponize what are supposed to be our quote-unquote trusted institutions. Now, of course, leading into this, I managed to find out that none of them are particularly trustworthy well in advance. I mean, we're talking as far back as 2012, 2013 for me, when it, when it finally became irrefutably clear that these institutions could not be trusted. But I didn't think that they would go this far. I didn't put it past them. But I just didn't, you know, it, it was, you know, it was one of those, it's a, it's a non-zero chance. It's actually likely, but it's, but it's not, no, no, no. It's possible, it's plausible, but it just wasn't something that I thought was likely. I thought it to be somewhere in the sub 20, 25%, like sub one quarter to one third. You know, it was a one, one quarter to one third chance that they would actually do such a thing. And they went from one quarter to one third to now I assume that in every circumstance. Because everything that's happened since as far back as 2000, actually as far back as 2008, all the way up to today has demonstrated to me in an ever increasing sort of avalanche that this is what they do. Now, this is not the topic of conversation. This is just the primer. The primer for this conversation is the Russia collusion delusion. The primer for this conversation is the COVID narrative, that, that wackadoo narrative that brought about their little Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, World Economic Forum, Global Government Summit garbage that they've been peddling for decades. And I've just reached the point now where I've just had it. I'm no longer willing to countenance anybody who's like, well, but don't you think it's a good idea? No, I don't think it's a good idea. And I think you should probably kill yourself. If you think it's a good idea, I believe that it would be better for mankind for you to be pulled off of the chessboard permanently. Period. Full stop. Now, as a Catholic, of course, I want repentance. I want them to turn away from this delusion, this psychopathic, sociopathic, oligarchical narrative. But I also understand that, you know, when you get caught up in 70 years of habitual sin, like Joe Biden, like Nancy Pelosi, like all of these people, especially the ones who claim to be quote-unquote Catholic... I also understand that the saints have taught that the likelihood of a deathbed confession and, 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 and uh, repentance, deathbed penitence, is infinitesimally small. It's not zero, but it's scarcely above zero to be recognizable. It is statistically zero. So at this point, I just want them off the board. If God wants to scoop them up, in whatever heinous, nasty way possible, sure, fine. If the devil wants to wants to finally terminate them in whatever heinous, nasty way possible, fine. At this point, I don't care. I would like the repentance. I pray for the repentance, but I also understand that statistically, it's it's statistically it's a zero chance. In actuality, it's non-zero. It's like point zero 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 one two or something like like it's some infinite. It's such a ridiculously small chance at at uh, at final penitence that it's that I may as well not even acknowledge it. <clears throat> All of this is the primer 
for a document that I'm going to give you from someone who is a formal cur- former colonel of the general staff and former member of the Swiss Strategic Intelligence, a specialist in Eastern European studies, in, in Eastern European countries. This guy is specialized. His name is Jacques Baud. And the title of this is The Military Situation in Ukraine. The original is in French. I'm going to go ahead and read it in English because I'm not about to inflict French on most of my English-speaking peoples. But the original document is in French, so if you want to read the original, it'll make a little bit more sense because some of the stuff doesn't... Um, because it's a digital translation, it's not really going to... There's going to be parts where it gets a little squiffy, okay? It would make sense in French. In, in English, it makes a little less sense. The, you know, the idiom is a little bit not... It doesn't match. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. Let's get started with a prayer. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Sancta Michael Archangelae, defende nos in proelio. Contra nequitiam et insidias diabolias do praesidium. Imperetili Deus, supplicas de precambor, duque princeps militae caelestis, satanam aliosque spiritus malignos que ad perditionem animarum, pervegantur in mundo divina virtute, in infernum netrude. Amen. Cor Jesus Sacratissimum miserere nobis, Mater Dolorosa, ora pro nobis. Beatus Carolus Domo Austriae, ora pro nobis. Domine, ostende facium tuum et salvi erimus, Ave Maria Purissima, Immaculata Conceptio Est. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Now, actually, before I go diving into this nastiness, <clears throat> I want to take one last minute to say Alleluia. <laughs> Resurrexit, sicut dixit, Alleluia. Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. And for that, we must celebrate. I know that seems kind of despair. It's like, oh, it's like, wait a minute. But all everything, like, as annoyed as I am, the fact is, is Christ is risen and his justice is perfect. And I can relax in that, and I hope that you can too. I want to help you get a little bit more clear-eyed on the thing that's going on in Ukraine, because it's fitting to get ugly, and it's, the, and it's for the dumbest reasons possible. Know always that my prayers are with you. And I hope that you, you know, reciprocate on that one. But of course, I don't expect it. (laughs) All right. From the article, The Military Situation in Ukraine by Jacques Baud, former colonel of the general staff, former member of the Swiss Strategic Intelligence, and specialist in Eastern European countries. This is Documentation Bulletin number 27, March 2022. Part 1, On the Road to War. For years, from Mali to Afghanistan, I worked for peace and risked my life for it. It is therefore not a question of justifying the war, but of understanding what led us to it. I note that the experts who take turns on television sets to analyze the situation based on dubious information, most often hypotheses turned into facts, and therefore we no longer manage to understand what is happening. And that is how you create panic. The problem is not so much who is right in this conflict, but how our leaders make their decisions. Let us try to examine the roots of the conflict. 
It starts with those who for the past eight years have been talking to us about separatists or independence from the Donbass. It's wrong. The referenda conducted by the two self-proclaimed republics of Donetsk and Luhansk in May 2014 were not independence referenda, as some unscrupulous journalists claim, but self-determination or autonomy referenda. The term pro-Russian suggests that Russia was a party to the conflict, which was not the case, and the term Russian speakers would have been more honest. Moreover, these referenda were conducted against the advice of Vladimir Putin. In fact, these republics did not seek to separate from Ukraine, but to have a statute of autonomy guaranteeing them the use of the Russian language as an official language. Because the first legislative act of the new government resulting from the overthrow of President Yanukovych was the abolition on February 23, 2014 of the Kivalov-Kolinik Kolonichenko Law of 2012, which made Russian, Russian an official language. A bit as if uh, Puchists decided that French and Italian would, would no longer be official languages in Switzerland. This decision causes, caused a storm in the Russian-speaking population. This resulted in fierce repression against the Russian-speaking regions, Odessa, Donopropetrovsk, uh, Donopropet, uh, Dnepropetrovsk, Kharkov, Lugansk, and Donetsk, which began in February 2014. By the way, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed, but the Cyrillic languages are not my first languages. They're not even in the mix. <laughs> anyway, um, this resulted in fierce repression against the Russian-speaking regions, Odessa, Dnepropetrovsk, Oh, yeah, I'm just going to skip that one. It's way too long and too many syllables and not enough vowels. <clears throat> Kharkov, Lugansk, and Donetsk, which began in February 2014 and led to a militarization of the situation and a few massacres massacres in Odessa and Mariupol, uh, Mariupol for the most important. At the end of summer 2014, only the self-proclaimed republics of Donetsk and Lugansk remained. At this stage too rigid and stuck in a doctrinaire approach to the operational art, the Ukrainian staffs suffered the enemy without succeeding in imposing themselves. Examination of the course of the fighting in 2014 to 2016 in the Donbass shows that the Ukrainian general staff systematically, systematically and mechanically applied the same operational plans. However, the war waged by the autonomists was then very close to what we observed in Sahel, very mobile operations carried out with light means. With a more flexible and less doctrinaire approach, the rebels were able to exploit the inertia of the Ukrainian forces to trap them repeatedly. In 2014, I am at NATO, responsible for the fight against the proliferation of small arms, and we are trying to detect Russian arms deliveries to the rebels in order to see if Moscow is involved. The information that we receive then comes practically from all, Polish in, all from the Polish intelligence services and does not match with the information from the OSCE. In spite of rather crude allegations, we do not observe any delivery of arms and materiel uh, from the Russian military. The rebels are armed thanks to the defections of Russian-speaking Ukrainian units which cross over to the rebel side. 
As the Ukrainian failures progressed, the entire tank, artillery, or anti-aircraft battalions swelled the ranks of the autonomous. This is what drives the Ukrainians to commit to the Minsk Accords. But just after signing the first Minsk Accord, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko launched a vast anti-terrorist operation against Donbass. <clears throat> Bis repetita placent, poorly advised by NATO officers, the Ukrainians suffered a crushing defeat in Debaltsevo, which forced them to commit to the, Minsk, to the second Minsk agreement. It is essential to recall here that Minsk 1 in September of 2014 and Minsk 2 in February of 2015 agreements provided for neither the separation nor the independence of the republics, but their autonomy within the framework of Ukraine. Those who have read the accords, they are very, very few, will find that it is written in full that the status of the republics was to be negotiated between Kiev and the representatives of the republics for an internal solution in Ukraine. This is why, since 2014, Russia has systematically demanded their application while refusing to be a party to the negotiations because it was an internal matter for Ukraine. On the other side, the Westerners, led by France, have systematically tried to replace the Minsk Accords with the Normandy format, which put, which, which put Russians and Ukrainians face to face. However, let us remember, there were never any Russian troops in the Donbass before February 23rd to 24th of 2022. Moreover, the OSCE observers have never observed the slightest trace of Russian units operating in the Donbass. Thus, US intelligence map, uh, the U.S. intelligence map, published by the Washington Post on December 3rd, 2021, does not show Russian troops in Donbass. In October 2015, Vasil Hritsak, director of the Ukrainian Security Service, confessed that only 56 Russian fighters had been observed in Donbass. It was even, it was an even, it was even comparable to that of the Swiss going to fight in Bosnia during the weekends in the 1990s, or the French who were going to fight in Ukraine today. The Ukrainian army was then, was then in a deplorable state. In October 2018, after four years of war, Ukraine's chief military prosecutor, Anatoly Matios, said that Ukraine had lost 2,700 men in the Donbass. These numbers are important. 2,700 men in the Donbass. 891 from disease, 615 from suicide, 318 from traffic accidents, 228 from murder, 177 from other accidents, 175 from poisoning, meaning alcohol or drug overdose, 172 from careless ha handling of weapons, and 101 from breaches of safety rules. So the greatest killer of the Ukrainian troops was not war, it was disease. And then number two, suicide. I want you to think about the ramifications of the second highest cause of death of the 2,700 men who were lost in the Donbass being suicide. Continuing from the article. In fact, the army is undermined by the corruption of its cadres and no longer enjoys the support of the population. 
According to a UK Home Office report, when reservists were called up in March of April, March to April of 2014, 70% did not show up for the first session. 80% for the second, 90% for the third, and 95% for the fourth. In November in October, November of 2017, 70% of callers did not show up during the autumn 2017 callback campaign. This doesn't include the suicides and desertions, often for the benefit of the autonomists, which reach up to 30% of the workforce and in the ATO zone. Young Ukrainians refuse to go and fight in the Donbass and prefer emigration, which also explains, at least partially, the country's demographic deficit. The Ukrainian Ministry of Defense then turned to NATO to help make its armed forces more attractive. Having already worked on a similar project within the framework of the United Nations, I was asked by NATO to, to participate in a program intended to restore the image of the Ukrainian armed forces. But it is a long process, and the Ukrainians wanted to go quickly. Thus, to compensate for the lack of soldiers, the Ukrainian government resorted to paramilitary militias. They are essentially made up of foreign mercenaries, often far-right activists. As of 2020, they constitute around 40% of Ukraine's forces and number about 102,000 men, according to Reuters. They are armed, financed, and trained by the United States, Great Britain, Canada, and France. There are more than 19 nationalities, including Swiss. Western countries have therefore clearly created and supported a Ukrainian far-right militia. In October 2021, the Jerusalem Post sounded the alarm by denouncing the Centuria project. These militias have been operating in the Donbass since 2014 with Western support. Even if we can discuss the term Nazi, the fact remains that these militias are violent, conveying a nauseating ideology, and are virulently anti-Semitic. Their anti-Semitism is more cultural than political, which is why the adjective Nazi is not really appropriate. Their hatred of the Jew comes from the great famines of the years 1920 to 1930 in Ukraine, resulting in the, from the confiscation of crops by Stalin in order to finance the modernization of the Red Army. However, this genocide, known in Ukraine under the name of Holodomor, was perpetrated by the NKVD, the ancestor of the KGB, whose upper echelons of leadership were mainly composed of Jews. That is why today Ukrainian extremists are asking Israel to apologize for the crimes of communism, as the Jerusalem Post reports. We are, therefore, a long way from a rewriting of history by Vladimir Putin. I want to inject at this point that if you, I'll have the link for this document in the, in the description of this, of this podcast episode. And the reason why that's important is because I have just crossed over more than, uh, more than a dozen citations and links where you can actually read that where you can read the articles and the other reports that have been put out <clears throat> it is extremely important that you see all of the levels that this that all of the levels and all of the directions that this seems to be headed in and all of the people who are involved in this so if you get an opportunity you don't have to dig deep into it that's part of the reason why I'm doing the article why I'm doing this article now but if you get the opportunity 
check this article out and then click a few of the links to kind of get a confirmation. And if you are so inclined, because I know that, oh, let's be real, it's not like we have lots of time. Most of us have day jobs. But if you have the time to do so, actually do a deep dive so you can see where this really is. Now, I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not defending Russia pretty much at all beyond what I would normally de uh, defend with regards to the move between the, uh, with regards to the move in a more Christian direction for the government. But that all of all of your feelings about Russia have to be set aside in order to see what the West has done here, because it was that is what seems to be what is being called out by this document. <clears throat> Continuing from the article. These militias, stemming from the far-right groups that led the Euromaidan rev revolution in 2014, are made up of fanatical and brutal individuals. The best known of these is the Azov Regiment, whose emblem is reminiscent of that of the 2nd SS Das Reich Panzer Division, which is the object of real veneration in Ukraine for having liberated Kharkov from the Soviets in 1943, before perpetuating the massacre of Orador sur Glan in, in 1944 in France. Among the famous figures of the Azov Regiment was the opponent, Roman Protasevich, arrested in 2021 by the Belarusian authorities following the case of Ryanair Flight FR-4978. On May 23, 2021, there was talk of the deliberate hijacking of an airliner by a MiG-29 with Putin's agreement, of course, to arrest Protasevich, although the information then available does not confirm this scenario in any way. But it must be shown that, that President Lukashenko is a thug and, and, and Protasevich a journalist in love with democracy. However, a, ratifying, a rather edifying investigation produ produced by an American NGO in 2020 highlighted Protasevich's far-right mil militant activities. Western conspiracy then sets in motion and, un and unscrupulous media groom his biography. <clears throat> oh, wow. Okay, let me re restate that sentence. A Western conspiracy then sets in motion with and unscrupulous media to groom his biography. Finally, in January 2022, the ICAO report is published and shows that despite some procedural errors, Belarus acted in accordance with the rules in force and that the MiG-29 took off 15 minutes after the Ryanair pilot decided to land in Minsk. So no Belarus plot, <laughs> so there was no Belarus plot, and even less with Putin. Ah, one more detail. Protasevich, cruelly tortured by Belarusian police, is now free. Those who would like to correspond with him can go to his Twitter account. The labeling of Nazi or neo-Nazi given to the Ukrainian paramilitaries is considered Russian propaganda. Perhaps, but that is not the opinion of, of the Times of Israel, the Simon Wiesenthal Th Center, or the Counterterrorism Center at West Point. But this remains debatable because in 2014, Newsweek magazine seemed to associate them with the Islamic State. Your choice. 
So the West supports and continue to arm and continues to arm militias that have been guilty of numerous crimes against civilian populations since 2014. Rape, torture, and massacres. But while the Swiss government has very has been very quick to impose sanctions against Russia, those have not been adopted against Ukraine, which has been slaughtering its own population since 2014. In fact, those who defend the rights of the men in Ukraine have long condemned the actions of these groups, but have not been followed by our governments. Because in reality, we are not trying to help Ukraine, but to fight Russia. The integration of these paramilitary forces into the National Guard was not at all accompanied by a denazification, as some claim. Among the many examples, that of the insignia of the Azov Regiment is... Well, I, he says edifying, I would say pertinent. The very next, there's an opening, and it's the insignia of the 2nd Panzer Division, SS. The logo of the Zvoboda Party. The insignia of the <laughs> Ukrainian Patriots, and the insignia of the Azov Battalion. And you will notice a certain continuity. In fact, it actually becomes especially present, prescient with... The, with the insignia of the Azov Battalion, as it has the, well, very obvious, let's be real, any idiot can recognize the Nazi symbol, symbolism for the Azov Battalion. Continuing from the article. In 2022, very schematically, the Ukrainian armed forces fighting the Russian offensive are structured as army subordinate to the Ministry of Defense, it is articulated in three army corps, corps and composed of maneuver formations, tanks, heavy artillery, missiles, etc. National Guard, which just depends on the Ministry of the Interior and is articulated in five territorial commands. The National Guard is therefore a territorial defense force which is not a part of the Ukrainian army. It includes paramilitary militias called volunteer battalions, also known by the evocative name of retaliatory battalions composed of infantry. Mainly trained for urban combat, they now ensure the defense of the cities, such as Kharkov, Mariupol, Odessa, Kiev, etc. Part 2. The War Former head of the Warsaw Pact forces in, in the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Service. Oh. <clears throat> um... <laughs> the former head of the Warsaw Pact forces in, in the Swiss Strategic Intelligence Service, I observe with sadness but not astonishment that our services are no longer in a position to understand the military situation in Ukraine. The self-proclaimed experts who parade across our screens tirelessly relay the same information modulated by the assertion that Russia and Vladimir Putin is irrational. Is irrational. Let's take a step back. The Outbreak of War. Since November 2021, the Americans have constantly brandished the threat of a Russian invasion against Ukraine. However, the Ukrainians do not seem to agree. Why? We have to go back to March 24th, 2021. On that day, on that day Volodymyr Zelensky issued a decree for the, dec for the reconquest of Crimea and began to deploy his forces towards the south of the country. Simultaneously, several NATO exercises were conducted between the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, accompanied by a significant increase in reconnaissance flights along the Russian border. Russia then conducts a few exercises to test the operational readiness of its troops and to show that it is following the evolution of the situation. 
Things calm down until October-November with the end of the Zapad 21 exercises, whose troop movements are interpreted as a reinforcement for an offensive against Ukraine. However, even the Ukrainian authorities refute the idea of Russian preparations for a war, and, and Alexei Reznikov, Ukrainian Minister of Defense, declares that there has been no change on its border since the spring. In violation of the Minsk Accords, Ukraine is conducting aerial operations in Donbass using drones, including at least one strike against a fuel depot in Donetsk in October 2021. The American press points this out, but not the Europeans, and no one condemns these violations. In February 2022, events rush. On February 7th, during his visit to Moscow, Emmanuel Macron reaffirms to Vladimir Putin his attachment to the Minsk Accords, a commitment he will repeat after his interview with Volodymyr Zelensky the next day. But on February 11th, in Berlin, after nine hours of work, the meeting of the political advisors of the leaders of the Normandy format ends, without concrete result. Ukrainians still and always refuse to apply the Accords of Minsk, apparently under pressure from the United States. Vladimir Putin then notes that Macron has made empty promises to him, and the West is not ready to enforce the accords as they have been doing for eight years. Ukrainian preparations in the contact zone continue. The Russian parliament is alarmed and on February 15th asks Vladimir Putin to recognize the independence of the republics, which he refuses. On February 17th, President Joe Biden announces that Russia will attack Ukraine in the coming days. How does he know? It's a mystery. But since the 16th, the artillery shelling of the populations of the Donbass has increased dramatically, as shown by the daily reports of OSCE observers. Naturally, neither the media, nor the European Union, nor NATO, nor any Western government reacts and intervenes. We will say later that this is Russian disinformation. In fact, it seems that the European Union and some countries purposely glossed over the massacre of the people of Donbass, knowing that it would provoke Russian inter intervention. At the same time, there are reports of acts of sabotage in the Donbass. On January 18th, Donbass fighters inter intercept saboteurs with, equipped with Western equipment and speaking Polish, seeking to create chemical incidents in, Gorg in Gorlivka. <laughs> I have to say that again because this is the first time I'm hearing this. At the same time, there are reports of acts of sabotage in the Donbass. On January 18th, Donbass fight fighters intercept saboteurs equipped with Western equipment and speaking Polish, seeking to create chemical incidents in Gorlivka. They could be CIA mercenaries led or advised by Americans and made up of Ukrainian or European fighters to carry out sabotage actions in the Donbass republics. And there's a chart showing an increase in the relative increase in the number of explosions in the Donbass region, and it's kind of shocking, actually. <clears throat> from the second, what, no, from the second, 14th of February, from Valentine's Day until the 18th, they go from less than 50 explosions to more than 1,400 explosions that are, that are being tracked by OSCE. And then it goes 1,400, 1,200 on the 19th, 800 on the 20th, 1,500 on the 21st, and back to 1,400 on the 22nd. Could you imagine living in a place that had 1,000 explosions a day? That's literally what that, what that chart is talking about. <clears throat> is that there were things being destroyed to the tune of 1,000 explosions 
every single day from the 18th to the 22nd. <clears throat> There's also a diagram that shows the ceasefire violations observed by the OSCE along the Do along the uh, Donetsk, Donetsk, Donetsk and Lugansk, Luhansk regions, the Donbas, and it's startling to say the least. Continuing from the article. In fact, as early as February 16th, Joe Biden knows that the Ukrainians began to shell the civilian populations of Donbass, putting Vladimir Putin in front of a difficult choice to help Donbass militarily and create an international problem or to sit idle and watch Russian announcers from the Donbass being run over. If he decides to intervene, Vladimir Putin can invoke the international obligation of the responsibility to protect, but he knows that whatever its nature or scale, the intervention will trigger a shower of sanctions. Therefore, whether, it, whether its intervention is limited to the Donbass or whether it goes further to put pressure on the West for the status of Ukraine, the price to be paid will be the same. And this is what he explains in his speech on February 21st. Those of you who did not, do, did not catch my coverage of it, you can go back um, because uh, a few weeks ago I did cover those speeches and I talked at length about them. I didn't actually like recite what he said because I directed you to the YouTube videos, but I spoke at length about what he was talking about. <clears throat> that day, he acceded to the request of the Duma and recognized the independence of the two republics of Donbass and, and Luhansk, of the Donbass, excuse me. The, uh, and the Duma is the Russian parliament who had been asking them for weeks. <clears throat> so, yeah. Um, yeah, that day he acceded to the request of the Duma and recognized the independence of the two republics of Donbass, and in the process he signed treaties of friendship and assistance with them. The Ukrainian artillery bombardments on the populations of Donbass continued, and on February 23rd, the two republics requested military aid from Russia. On the 24th, Vladimir Putin invokes Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, which provides for mutual military assistance within the framework of a defensive alliance. In order to make the Russian intervention totally illegal in the eyes of the public, we deliberately obscure the fact that the war actually started on February 16th. The Ukrainian army was prepping to attack the Donbass as early as 2021, as certain Russian and European intelligence services were well aware. But the lawyers will judge. In his February 24th speech, Vladimir Putin stated the two objectives of his operation, to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. It is therefore not a question of seizing Ukraine or even in all likelihood of occupying it and certainly not of destroying it. From there, our visibility on the course of the operation... Actually, I want to take a pause for a moment at this point. We have heard a lot of talk that Russia is the one doing the bombing. And as I'm reading this report, I am not convinced that it's Russia that's doing the crazy strikes. I'm not saying they're not. But I'm no longer convinced that they're the ones pushing. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From there... Uh, I'm sorry, continuing from the article. From there, our visibility on the course of the operation is limited. The Russians have an excellent security of operations. Yeah, they have excellent OPSEC. And the detail of their planning is not known. But fairly quickly, the course of operations makes it possible to understand how the strategic objectives were translated into the operational plan. Demilitarization. Ground destruction of Ukrainian aviation, air defense systems, and reconnaissance assets. Neutralization of the command and intelligence structures, as well as the main logistics routes in the depth of the territory. Encirclement of the bulk of the Ukrainian army massed in the southeast of the country. Denazification. Destruction or neutralization of volunteer battalions operating in the cities of Odessa, Kharkov, and Mariupol, as well as in the various facilities on the territory. Now... I spoke about this precise thing, that as I was watching the moves, it looked like everything that the Russian military was doing reflected precisely what Vladimir Putin said his objectives were. We don't know this to be true, but in this, I'm actually glad to not be the only voice making this claim. The demilitarization. The Russian offensive proceeds in a very classic manner. At first, as the Israelis had done in 1967, with the destruction on the ground of the air forces in the very first hours. Then we witness a simultaneous progression on several axes according to the principle of flowing water. We advance wherever resistance is weak, and we leave the cities, (laughs) very voracious in troops, for later. To the north, the Chernobyl plant is occupied immediately to prevent acts of sabotage. The images of Ukrainian and Russian soldiers jointly guarding the plant are naturally not shown. The idea that Russia is trying to take over Kiev, the capital, to eliminate Zelensky, typically comes from the West. This is what they did in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and what they wanted to do in Syria with the help of the Islamic State. But Vladimir Putin never intended to take down or overthrow Zelensky. On the contrary, Russia seeks to keep him in power by pushing him to negotiate by encircling Kiev. This ha- he had refused to do so far uh, he had refused to do so far as to apply the Minsk Accords, but now the Russians want to obtain Ukraine's neutrality. And I spoke about this as well that encircling Kiev basically puts them into siege and the, and it forces them to the, to the negotiating table. 
Many Western commenters, excuse me, many Western commentators marveled that the Russians continued to seek a negotiated solution while conducting military operations. The explanation is in the is in the Russian strategic conception since Soviet times. For Westerners, war begins when politics ceases. However, the Russian approach follows a Clausewitzian inspiration. The war is the continuity of politics, and one can pass fluidly from one to the other, even during combat. This creates pressure on the opponent and pushes him to negotiate. From an operational point of view, the Russian offensive was an example of its kind. In six days, the Russians seized a territory as vast as the United Kingdom, with a speed of advance greater than what the Wehrmacht made in 1940. The bulk of the Ukrainian army was deployed in the south of the country for a, ma for a major operation against Donbass. This is why the Russian forces were able to encircle it from the beginning of March in the cauldron between Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Severodonetsk, <clears throat> oh, and Severodonetsk, Severodonetsk, Donetsk, good lord. Get more vowels, Ukraine, holy cow. By a thrust coming from the east via, uh, via Kharkov and another coming from the south from, from the Crimea. The troops of the republics of Donetsk and Lugansk complete the action of the Russian forces with a push from the east. At this stage, the Russian forces are slowly tightening the noose but are no, but are no longer under time pressure. Their objective of demilitarization is practically achieved and the residual Ukrainian forces no longer have an operational and strategic command structure. The slowdown that our experts attribute to poor logistics is only the consequence of having achieved the objective set. Russia does not want to engage in an occupation of the whole Ukrainian territory. In fact, it seems rather that Russia is trying to limit its advance to the country's linguistic border. Our media speak of in indiscriminate bombardments against civilian populations, particularly in Kharkov and Donetsk. And, uh, and Donetsk images are broadcast on a loop. However, Gonzalo Lira, a Latin American who lives there, presents us with a calm city on March 10th and March 11th. And I spoke about how the city, there were a lot of cities that were calm um, in, in videos on Twitter. It might actually be the same dude. Admittedly, it's a big city and you can't see everything, but that seems to indicate that we are not in the total war that we are being served continuously on our television screens. As for the republics of Donbass, they have liberated their own territories and are fighting in the city of Mariupol. Denazification In cities like Kharkov, Mariupol, and Odessa, defense is provided by paramilitary militias. They know that the objective of denazification is aimed primarily at them. For an attacker in an urbanized area, civilians are a problem. This is why Russia seeks to create humanitarian corridors to empty the city of civilians and leave only the militias in order to fight them more easily. Conversely, these militias seek to keep the civilians in the city in order to deter the Russian army from coming to fight there. This is why they are reluctant to implement these corridors and do everything so that the Russian efforts are in vain. They can thus use the civilian population as human shields. Videos showing civilians trying to leave Mariupol and being beaten up by fighters from the Azov Regiment are naturally carefully censored here. And to, any most, and to most of the West, in particular the United States, you wouldn't be able to tell whether it was an Azov Battalion guy or a Russian because you can't speak the language, you don't even understand the dialect, and you wouldn't understand the differences in speech. It all sounds the same. This is why I've always been a huge proponent of being multilingual. 
Continuing from the article. On Facebook, the Azov group was considered in the same category as the Islamic State and subject to the platform's dangerous individuals and organizations policy. It was therefore forbidden to glorify them, and the posts that were favorable to them were systematically banned. But on February 24th, Facebook changed its policy and allowed posts favorable to the militia. In the same spirit, in March, the platform authorizes in the former Eastern European countries calls for the murder of Russian soldiers and leaders. (laughs) So much for the values that inspire our leaders, as we will see. Our media propagates a romantic image of the popular resistance. It is the image that has led the European Union to finance the distribution of arms to the civilian population. I want to insert in here, right right at this point, if there is anyone who can can recognize the, the propagandistic utilization of a romantic form of the popular resistance, it is going to be someone... From whose country we get the phrase, Viva la Résistance. It would be foolish not to take his perspective on, on on the propaganda machine in this, because he would be the one to recognize it. Continuing from the article. Actually, I'm going to back up a sentence, so this way this all comes through in a nice even thing. Our media propagates a romantic image of popular resistance. It is this image that has led the European Union to finance the distribution of arms to the civilian population. It is a criminal act. In my role as chief of doctrine for peacekeeping operations at the UN, I worked on the issue of of the protection of civilians. We then saw that violence against civilians took place in very specific contexts, especially when weapons abound and there are no command structures. However, these command structures are the essence of armies. Their function is to channel the use of force according to an objective. By arming citizens in a haphazard fashion, as is currently the case, the European Union turns them into combatants with the attendant consequences, potential targets. Moreover, without command, without operational goals, the distribution of arms inevitably leads to the settling of scores, banditry, and actions that are more deadly than effective. War becomes a matter of emotions. Force becomes violence. This is what happened in Tawarga in Libya from August 11th to 13th of 2011, where 30,000 black Africans were massacred with weapons parachuted illegally by France. Moreover, the British Royal Institute for Strategic Studies, the RUSI, sees no added value in these arms deliveries. Moreover, by delivering arms to a country at war, one exposes oneself to being considered as a belligerent. The Russian strikes on March 13, 2022, against the, the Mykolaiv Air Base followed Russian warnings that weapons transports would be treated as hostile targets. The European, excuse me, the European Union repeats the disastrous experience of the Third Reich in the last hours of the Battle of Berlin. War should be left to the military, and when one side is lost, it should be admitted. And if there is to be resistance, it must imperatively be led and structured. However, we are doing the exact opposite. We are pushing citizens to go and fight. At the same time, Facebook is allowing calls for the murder of Russian soldiers and leaders. So much for the values that inspire us. In some intelligence services, this irresponsible decision is seen as a way of using the Ukrainian population as cannon fodder to fight Vladimir Putin's Russia. This kind of murderous decision had to be left to the colleagues of Ursula von der Leyen's grandfather. 
it would have been wise to engage in negotiations and thus obtain guarantees for the civilian populations than to add fuel to the fire. But it's easy to be combative when it's other people's blood. Mariupol Maternity. It is important to understand beforehand that it is not the Ukrainian army which ensures the defense of Mariupol, but the Azov militia composed of foreign mercenaries. In its summary of the situation, March 7th, 2022, the Russian United Nations mission in New York states, quote, residents report that the Ukrainian armed forces have expelled the personnel of the NATO hospital number one from the city of Mariupol and have installed a shooting station inside the establishment. Close quote. On March 8th, the end <clears throat> hang on, let me back up. Let me say that again. Residents report the Ukrainian armed forces have expelled the NATO hospital. You remember that maternity ward that, it, that Russia bombed? Everybody's like, ah, oh, they bombed a maternity ward. There were, no, there were no doctors. They expelled the personnel from that hospital and turned it into a military installation. On March 8th, the independent Russian media, Lenta.ru, published a testimony of civilians from Mariupol who said that the maternity hospital was taken over by the militias of the Azov Regiment and chased out the civilian occupants, threatening them with their weapons. They thus confirmed the statements of the Russian ambassador, um, ambassador a few hours earlier. The Mariupol hospital occupies a dominant position, perfectly adequate for installing anti-tank weapons and for observation. On March 9th, Russian forces hit the building. According to CNN, there are 17 injured, but the footage shows no casualties on the premises and there's no evidence that the reported casualties are related to this strike. We talk about children, but in reality we see nothing. It may be true, but it may be false, which does not prevent EU leaders from seeing it as a, quote, war crime, which allows Zelensky just afterwards to claim a no-fly zone over Ukraine. In reality, we don't know exactly what happened, but the sequence of events tends to confirm that the Russian forces struck a position of the Azov Regiment and that a maternity ward was then free of all civilians. The problem is that the paramilitary militias that ensure the defense of the cities are encouraged by the international community not to respect the customs of war. It seems that the Ukrainians have reenacted the scenario of the maternity hospital in Kuwait City in 1990, which had been completely staged by the firm Hill and Knowlton for the amount of $10.7 million in order to convince the United Nations Security Council to intervene in Iraq for Operation Desert Shield Desert Storm. Now, this actually strikes really close to home because, well, yeah, it strikes really close to home because that's, that was one of those wars I thought was a good thing. Western politicians have also accepted strikes against civilians in Donbass for eight years without adopting any sanctions against the Ukrainian government. We have long since entered into a dynamic where Western politicians have agreed to sacrifice international law to their objective of weakening Russia. Part 3. Conclusions as a former intelligence professional, the first thing that strikes me is the total absence of Western intelligence services in representing the situation for a year. In Switzerland, the services have been criticized for not having provided the correct picture of the situation. In fact, it seems that all over the Western world, the services have been overwhelmed by the politicians. The problem is that it's the politicians who decide. 
The best intelligence service in the world is useless if the decision maker does not listen to it, and this is what happened during this crisis. That said, while some intelligence services had a very precise... Hang on, I'm going to back up. I was going to carry on. I'm going to repeat that paragraph, and then I'm going to tell you what that actually says. As a former intelligence professional, the first thing that strikes me is the total absence of Western intelligence services in representing the situation for a year. In Switzerland, the services have been criticized for not having provided a correct picture of the situation. In fact, it seems that all over the Western world, the services have been overwhelmed by the politicians. This is not true. This, the intelligence services have made themselves the lackeys, the lapdogs, the bootlickers of the politicians for the achievement of the objectives that the politicians want. We know this to be true. You've seen it with the World Economic Forum. You've seen it with the crazy policies coming out of the Biden administration. You saw it with Justin Trudeau. You saw it with Klaus Schwab. You see it all over the world, and it's always the same thing. Everything pushes in that exact same direction. But this is not his subject, which is why he's not talking about it, but I'm going to talk about it because this is actually in my wheelhouse. <clears throat> Continuing. The problem is it's the politicians who decide. The best intelligence services in the world are useless if the decision maker doesn't listen to it. But the intelligence services, the leaders of these intelligence services, if they did not agree with the objectives that the politicians have put forth, they would not stand for it. They would resign in protest. And the fact is, is that we are well aware that in the United States, it is the intelligence services that move the politicians. So it is not that the intelligence services, the intelligence agencies aren't giving the best possible deal. Many of these people are already compromised because it is their objectives that they are willing, that they are desiring to see come to pass. Whether they're bought, whether they're lackeys, whether, whether they're idiots, patsies, or whatever, it makes no difference. The, the outcome is the same. So the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, all pushing in the same direction doesn't surprise. It is the politicians who are actually, and you saw it in the United States, because all of the intel came out, the drum beats all came from the media, and then the politicians moved in that same direction. So we know that at least in the United States, it has nothing to do with the decision makers. It is the intelligence agencies that are actually lying or misdirecting or forcing or coercing or whatever. Because it started with them, and then the politicians followed weeks later. Joe Biden had been talking about this for months, and then all of a sudden, over the course of a couple of weeks, people who were absolutely against the Biden administration are all for this. We saw it in the United States. So very clearly, what we think is the case and what he thinks is the case is not what's actually going on. <clears throat> Continuing from the article, jump into the next paragraph. That said, while some intelligence services had a very precise and rational image of the situation, others clearly had the same image that is as that propagated by our media. In this crisis, the services of the countries of the new Europe played an important role. The problem is that by experience, I found that they were extremely bad on the analytical le level. Doctrinaire. They do not have the intellectual and political independence necessary to appreciate a situation with a quality military. It is better to have them as enemies than as friends. 
Then it seems that in some European countries, politicians have deliberately ignored their services to respond ideologically to the situation. This is why this crisis has been irrational from the start. It will be observed that all the documents that have been presented to the public during this crisis have been presented by politicians on the basis of commercial sources. Some Western politicians obviously wanted there to be a conflict. In the United States, the attack scenarios presented by Anthony Blinken to the Security Council were only the fruit of the imagination of a tiger team working for him. He did exactly like Donald Rumsfeld in 2002, who thus bypassed the CIA and other intelligence services that were far less assertive about the Iraqi chemical weapons. The dramatic developments we are witnessing today have causes we know about but refuse to see. On the strategic level, the expansion of NATO, which we have not dealt with here. On the political level, the Western refusal to implement the Minsk agreements. And on the operational level, the continuous and repeated attacks on the civilian populations of Donbass for years and the dramatic increase at the end of February 2022. In other words, we can, of course, deplore and condemn the Russian attack, but we, that is to say the United States, France, and the European Union in the lead, have created the conditions for a conflict to break out. We show compassion for the Ukrainian people and for the two million refugees. It's good. But if we had a modicum of compassion for the same number of refugees from the Ukrainian populations of the Donbass massacred by their own government and who have been accumulating in Russia for eight years, none of this would have happened. Whether the term genocide applies to the abuses suffered by the populations of Donbass is an open question. The term is gene generally reserved for larger cases like the Holocaust. However, the definition given by the Genocide Convention is probably broad enough to apply. Lawyers will appreciate. Clearly, this... Actually, hang on. I'm going to click that link because I do want to kick that, kick that open. Oh, I should probably translate this. Oh, no, 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 no. You're going to want to click that article because there are several articles... Or you're going to want to click that link um, because there are several. Looks to be at least 10 articles, if not more. Uh, no, looks to be 19 articles regard, regarding the definition of genocide. So you're going to want to actually... I was going to actually read through it, but I can't do that real quickly. Um, but there is a definition given by the Genocide Convention... And I got to be honest with you, just the quick look over that quick skim that I just did um, seems to apply. Clearly, this conflict has led us into hysteria. Sanctions seem to have become the preferred tool of our foreign policies. If we had insisted that Ukraine respect the Minsk Accords, which we negotiated and endorsed, none of this would have happened. The condemnation of Vladimir Putin is also ours. There's no point in whining after the fact. We had to act before. However, neither Emmanuel Macron, as guarantor and as a member of the UN Security Council, or, nor Olaf Scholz, nor Volodymyr Zelensky, have respected their commitments. Ultimately, the real defeat is that of those who have no voice. The European Union was unable to promote the implementation of the Minsk agreements. On the contrary, it did not react when Ukraine bombarded its own population in Donbass. Had she done so, Vladimir Putin would not have needed to react. Absent from the diplomatic phase, the EU distinguished itself by fueling the conflict. On February 27th, the Ukrainian government agrees to start negotiations with Russia, but a few hours later, the European Union voted a budget of 450 million euros to supply arms to Ukraine, adding fuel to the fire. From there, the Ukrainians feel free, that they feel that they will not need to come to an agreement. The resistance of the Azov militias in Mariupol will even cause 
cause a raise of 500 million euro for weapons. In Ukraine, with the blessing of Western countries, those who are in favor of negotiation are eliminated. This is this is the case of Denis Kiryev. Uh, there we go. Got a little dizzy looking. I've been reading this thing for too long. This is the case of Denis Kiryev, one of the Ukrainian negotiators assassinated on March 5th by the Ukrainian Secret Service because he is too favorable to Russia and is considered a traitor. The same fate is reserved for Dmitry Demanyenko, former deputy, former deputy head of the main directorate of the SBU for Kiev and its region, assassinated on March 10th because too favorable and because of too favorable favorable to an agreement with Russia. He's killed by the middle by the Mirot militia, the peacemaker militia. Blech. This militia is associated with with the Mirot website, which lists, quote, enemies of Ukraine with their personal data. <laughs> That's address, telephone. So basically, they dox them so they can be harassed or even eliminated. A punishable practice in many countries, but not in Ukraine. The United Nations and some European countries have demanded its closure, refused by the Rada. Eventually, the price will be high, but Vladimir Putin will likely achieve the goals he set for himself. His ties with Beijing have solidified. China emerges as a mediator of the conflict, while Switzerland enters the list of enemies of Russia. The Americans must ask Venezuela and Iran for oil to get out of the energy impasse which they have gotten themselves into. Juan Guaido leaves the scene definitively, and the United States must pitifully reverse the sanctions imposed on their enemies. Western ministers who seek to collapse the Russian economy and make the Russian people suffer, even calling for the assassination of Putin, show even if they partially reversed the form of their remarks, but not on bottom, that our leaders are no better than the ones we hate. Because sanctioning Russian athletes from the Paralympic Games or Russian artists has absolutely nothing to do with a fight against Putin. Putin, excuse me. Thus, therefore, we recognize that Russia is a democracy since we consider that the Russian people are responsible for the war. If not, then why are we trying to punish an entire population for the fault of one? Remember that collective punishment is prohibited by the Geneva Conventions. I want to pump the brakes right there before I carry on to the next paragraph. Every time I went overseas, we had it hammered into us that the Geneva Conventions were very, very important. But for the soldier on the ground, the Geneva Conventions don't really apply. There are very few instances where you have to worry about the Geneva Conventions as a ground as as an actual ground troop. There are specific things that you can't do, and those are the things that we always push on. But when it comes to the application of the Geneva Conventions as a whole for the rule of law and the law of warfare, those are at national, international levels. So I'm going to make this declaration based on what I know of these conventions because I've read the conventions, I've studied them extensively, I was forced to. Otherwise, let's be real, as a grunt, I really would not have cared one way or the other. But I've studied these conventions extensively because they were necessary. And I will tell you right now, the West, 
the U.S., Canada, the U.K., the Five Eyes Nations, NATO, and the European Union are all war criminals. I don't know enough about what has exactly been going on on the Russian side of things, but this assessment seems to match everything that I've seen published in the New York Times, the Washington Post. You know, they come to, they draw crazy ass conclusions because none of them have served a day in their lives in the military. And I was a professional soldier for two decades. I know what I see on the maps. This report echoes what I believed to be true based on what I see. And what I see is Russia holding back, trying to achieve very precise objectives because this is what the evidence on the ground shows. The little bits of propaganda, these video clips, this, that, and the other, I place very, very low on the priority scale. Russia has a military of more than one million soldiers. If they wanted Ukraine, they would have simply gone dress right dress, double arm interval, and they would have crossed from the eastern border to the western border and taken it. They have more than enough soldiers to do the job. If they wanted to destroy Ukraine, they could have erased it from the map 15 times before setting the first boots on the ground. I have not seen the rampant violations of international law on the Russian side. I have seen accusations. I have seen accusations come from the side that has been screaming and singing about false flag operations for the last six months. And I know that the people who are in charge of the West, from Macron to Biden to the entirety of NATO, all of the United Nations, these are the very same people who will accuse others of doing the exact thing that they themselves are doing. And I've seen no evidence of false flag operations from Russia. I have seen rampant evidence of false flag operations from the West. I'm not saying they're the good guy. Vladimir Putin fell into a trap. It was a well-laid trap. The people who have been coordinating this, and I say people very loosely because I'm not talking about human beings, I am talking about the enemy, the real enemy of mankind who has been slowly moving all of this into its fruition. They don't care. They want you dead. They want me dead. They want us all dead. They want Putin dead. They want Biden dead. They want every American, every Chinese man, every European, every African. They want humanity dead. Without any, poten without any potential or possibility of final penitence. Without any potential for salvation. And when you're talking about grand scale movements like this, this is biblical on its scale. 
pull out far enough and you can see it. It becomes very, very clear. It pains me. (sighs) Dear family, I would rather be beaten to death. I would rather be whipped and scourged. I would rather be cut a thousand times with razor blades and dropped into alcohol or acid burned alive and nailed to a cross. I would rather endure all of those punishments and tortures all at the same time than to say in any direct or indirect manner that my country has committed war crimes on a global scale. But what I see of the situation is precisely that. I truly, I would prefer a black helicopter hovering over the, over my apartment right now about to kick in the door than to have me be able to say these words. But what I see, what I see are war crimes on a scale not seen in history. The deception game that's being played with the West, the years of stories and reports that have gone, that have been, they've been reported. I did a whole blasted podcast on a three-hour-long intelligence report that literally only included the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, CBS News, ABC News, Reuters, the Associated Press, the Guardian, the Daily Mail. A three-hour report that was literally only mainstream cathedral media organizations where they document line by line every single thing that I have said here. Every single thing that I've repeated from this document that I'm reading to you now. Continuing from the article. The lesson to be drawn from this conflict is our sense of variable geometry, humanity. If we were so attached to peace and to Ukraine, why didn't we encourage her more to respect the agreements that she had signed and that the members of the Security Council had approved? Media integrity is measured by their willingness to work under the terms of the Munich Charter. They had succeeded in propagating hatred of the Chinese during the COVID crisis, and their polarized message leads to the same effects against the Russians. Journalism is stripping itself more and more of professionalism to become militant. As Geth said, the greater the light, the darker the shadow. The more the sanctions against Russia are excessive, the more the cases where we have done nothing to highlight our racism and our servility. Why has no Western politician reacted to the strikes against the civilian populations of Donbass for eight years? After all, 
What makes the conflict in Ukraine more blameworthy than the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, or Libya? What sanctions have we adopted against those who have deliberately lied before the international community to wage unjust, unjustified, unjustifiable, and murderous wars? Did we try to make suffer the American people who had lied to us because it's a democracy before the war in Iraq? Have we even adopted a single sanction against the countries, companies, or politicians who are fueling the conflict in Yemen, considered the worst humanitarian disaster in the world? Have we sanctioned the countries of the European Union who practice the most abject torture on their territory for the benefit of the United States? To ask the question is to answer it. And the answer is not glorious. I've said time and time and time again, that Russia may not be the good guy, but we're most definitely the bad guy. There may be no good guys in this, but I want to tie this, actually, I'm going to take a moment to tie this to Fatima. If I were to make an assessment right now, and I'm not, I'm not making a judgment call on this at all, but on the data that I have right now, Pope Francis's consecration was invalid. It could be invalid because he meddled with it too much. It could be invalid because he's not the legitimate Pope. It could be invalid for any number of reasons. But this does not look like a triumph of the Immaculate Heart because of the consecration. I could be mistaken. I hope I am. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph and Russia will be converted. But all of the other prophecies say that Russia is going to be the instrument of the chastisement of the rest of the world. And that implies not... See, here's the thing. They're going to be the instrument of the chastisement of the rest of the world. What does that imply? That implies that the rest of the world requires chastisement and Russia does not. And maybe they will get a chastisement because Gog and Magog are supposed to get their are supposed to get theirs as well. But from a Catholic perspective, if Russia is the instrument of chastisement, then it means that whatever it is that the rest of the world is doing is far worse. It's far worse than whatever it is that's going on in Russia. And Russia seems to be moving in the direction of Christianity, although naturally, not supernaturally. Which inclines, which is why I'm inclined to believe that the that the that the consecration was invalid. I could be wrong about all of this, but we have seven years to the centennial 
of the promise of our Lord. The request in 1929 was for Russia to be consecrated by the Pope in union with all the bishops. We are 93 years, 93 years from the centennial. In the end, the Holy Father will make the consecration, but it will be late. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. However, given that the Holy Father has chosen the path of the King of France, he will suffer the same fate. 100 years. If that fate if that fate is precise then in 2029 the Pope will have to flee Rome Rome will probably be sacked and largely destroyed and in 2033 he will be assassinated That's the path. Is it going to be Francis? I don't know. Is it going to be Benedict? I don't know. I don't know. There's enough, there's enough obfuscation about what the truth is in the upper echelons of the Holy Catholic Church for me to, for me to have to say, I don't know. But I can anticipate... I think it was the 13th of July, if I'm remembering correctly, I could be mistaken, but I think it was the 13th of July in 2000, excuse me, in 1929, when the request was made. And if that is in fact the case, then you can bet your bottom dollar that when, that when God says, you're going to follow the same path, you're going to follow the same path. And on July 13th, 2029, we can anticipate that Rome will be sacked that the Catholic Church will be basically fully overturned. And that in 2033, the Pope will be assassinated. All of these things are conditional, mind you. So it's not like this is going to happen step by step by step. Okay? But our Lord said, and this is what you can expect. Now, if the consecration was done to a satisfactory level, okay. However, I did a little bit of research. I did a little bit of digging around. In 2014, when the Pope released two doves in the prayer for peace in Ukraine, between Ukraine uh, for the peace in Ukraine, the two doves started to fly up, and one dove was immediately attacked by a crow. And the other dove was immediately attacked by a seagull, and they were both killed. And because I was curious, I did some digging. They talk about ravens, they don't really talk about crows. Um, and I don't know if it was a raven and not a crow. I, I don't know, okay? I know that one was a blackbird, and the other bird was a seagull. 
and I looked into the symbolism of the two birds. And the seagull represents the libertine, the liberals in the Catholic sense, the rebels, the revolutionaries, the Freemasons. And the blackbird represents the judgment of God. Like I said, I don't know if it was a crow or a raven. Uh, the Bible speaks of ravens. They don't tend to speak of crows. But the blackbird is always a judgment of God. And the seagull was the judgment of the devil. You can look it up. You can decide for yourself the interpretations. I just looked at it from, you know, the symbolism within Christianity and within Catholicism. And the symbolism of the seagull is liberty, is the libertine, is license. <clears throat> it is... Well, if Rome would have been in the Western Hemisphere, that dove would have been killed by a bald eagle. Likewise, actually, the crow, the crow would not have been a necessarily a crow, it would have been a raven. But it was a seagull and a blackbird that took out those two doves when the Pope was praying for, praying for peace in Ukraine, which meant that the West and God... <laughs> well, on the one hand, the West, and on the other hand, God. The West ain't having it, and God rejected it. All of the other stuff as to whether or not this was an omen, you know, about the papacy or this, that, and the other, I'm not going to dive into because I think these last few years have spoken quite clearly for themselves. The tragedy is that if all of the markers are accurate, before here, here before too long, the living will end to be the dead. All over the world, the living will end to be the dead. <clears throat> now, in this time of feasting, in this time of thanksgiving, and this is a time of feasting and thanksgiving because our Lord has won. Our Lady's Immaculate Heart will triumph. So I wouldn't necessarily focus on the penance and the reparation too hard. This is a time of celebration. But you can give thanksgiving in reparation just as much as you can give penance. And so your intentions should be laced, be they thanksgiving or sorrow and penitence or whatever, whatever they should be, should be for the reparation of the blasphemies made against the Immaculate Heart of Mary, of the blasphemies made against the Sacred Heart of our Lord, of the blasphemies against His holy face and His holy name. 
We need to give thanks that he has risen. We need to give thanks that he has saved us. We need to give thanks that he is victorious. Christus vincit. Christus regnat. Christus imperat. And we need to give thanks. And we need to give thanks for those who will not. We need to give thanks for the likes of the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and all of those people who seem to think that God is secondary, that God, that God is not even a factor in his own creation. We need to give thanks for ourselves, for our salvation, and we need to give thanks for those who refuse. For those who refuse to express the gratitude that he came down from heaven, was made into flesh, lived among us and died for our sins and re- and by his own power w- rose from the grave. They seem to think that it's immaterial, that it's not worth celebrating. And we need to celebrate both for us and for those who refuse. For those who who refuse to look up. For those who refuse to look towards Our Lady, who refuse to look towards Our Lord, we need to celebrate for them. In reparation for them. Christ is risen. Christ is King. Give thanks to the Lord. For He is good. And for all of these other people, for all of us who are trapped in these nations who refuse to act right, prepare. But prepare mostly your souls. Because whether it's 2029, when World War III pops off, or it's 2023, It doesn't matter. It really, truly doesn't matter. Prepare your souls now. Prepare your family's souls now. Prepare your community's souls now. Now is the time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It truly is. And for those of you who think, oh, well, it might be, you know, decades and decades and decades away. Well, yeah, that's true. But the call came almost 100 years ago. In the same way as it was in the days of Noah. And I got to be honest with you, we're not any better. (laughs) They've made it clear they want to fight against reality itself. Well, that's fine. They're going to lose. Reality always wins because reality was created by our God. And our God is invincible. But the rest of us can be vinced. So make yourselves ready. Don the whole armor of God. And in these days, especially the preparedness that comes with the gospel of peace.
That's what he was saying. That's what he was saying to Marie-Julie Jehenny. <clears throat> Too few people have thought to wipe off my adorable feet. He was pointing us to the gospel. He was pointing us to the preparation. He was pointing us to the... <laughs> Those wounds are pointing us to what we need to be ready for. I'm not a theologian. That may have been sloppy as all get out. And hey, cool. But if that clicked in your head the same way it did mine. Hope you got your purple scapulars. Anyway, let me get off of here. It's now been a, almost a full hour and a half. If you've made it this far, awesome. Feel free to email the show. Email me. I mean, I say the show, but it's really me. Um, Caleb at RadioFreeCatholic.com You can find me on Twitter at Mighty Colibri. You can also run the search for Caleb the Mechanic because that's how Twitter works. You can find me on SP3RN also at Caleb the Mechanic. Hopefully, before too long, <laughs> I'll have the website up properly, but you can even actually still contact me through the website because the little email thing actually works there too. Anyhow, Pray for the church. Pray for the nations, all of the nations of the earth, but especially your own. And pray for us in Catholic social media. Because I think I might be the only one that's talking about this from this perspective. And there are more of us who need to make ready and need to, need to sound the alarm for others. This is Caleb the Mechanic with Radio Free Catholic. May God bless you and the Virgin protect you. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. <laughs>